If you would, please remain standing and turn your Bibles open to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And after prayer, I'll read verse 11 down through the end of that chapter, the parable of the prodigal son. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of the gospel this morning. Now, gracious Father, we do ask for your blessing. We ask for your power, O Lord, in the preaching of the gospel. Make it clear, understood. Lord, make it known. We pray, O Lord, that you would also move upon our hearts and our minds who hear. And Lord, as we listen, let it be effectual. Let it be a saving hearing that we possessed this morning, come and move in our hearts and our minds, our lives, Lord, to accept and to look, Lord, at this mirror, Lord, that we would look into and it would be, Lord, a humbling reckoning, Lord, where we would see any deficiency and then flee to Christ for them. Lord, we love you and we pray that you now would come and love on us Make this word known to us. Make it beloved to us, Lord. Make it precious to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 11. And he being Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. And then I will get up and go to my father And say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again and he was lost and has been found and they begin to celebrate. And now his older son was in the field and When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, his, when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for your brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. My intention when I first started this parable was to address the main character of the parable, which at first glance looks like the prodigal himself. And then I would, as I plan to this morning, address the older son and then in my last sermon addressing this chapter, deal with the compassionate father. Now, at first glance, it certainly looks like the prodigal is the main actor and the one that all of us ought to be focused on. And, well, it's true enough that we should focus on him and compare ourselves with him. But the main character of the whole parable is the compassion of the father. But before we get there and spend that glorious time looking at this compassionate, reconciling father, we want to address this older son that's often overlooked by many who read the text or even who preach through it. As I spent time meditating, reflecting upon, drafting various versions of the outline of this parable, I really, I guess, struggled is the right word to use with how to title it, what to name it, how do I present it, what is it that first hooks our attention and, and helps keep us focused in the text. And the thing that it seemed like the Lord was bringing me back to as I continued to read through the text over and over again was that the older son is the sinner revealed, Everyone sees the obvious. The prodigal is the notorious sinner, the extravagant sinner. Remember, that's what the word prodigal is related to, that extravagant, wasteful sinner. It's obvious he's sinful, but it's not so obvious that the older brother or older son is sinful. Remember, Jesus is taking the opportunity to teach these parables and to confront the two groups that's listening to him, but mainly those scribes and Pharisees up in verse 2 that begin to grumble 
at our Lord receiving these notorious sinners and teaching them about the righteousness found only in himself, the gospel. And it's clear that they were coming to be taught. They were coming to listen. They were coming to learn. And they were wanting to know how does a man, a woman, someone sinful cleanse themselves before God? And that's why the gospel is such good news. That's what it teaches us. It's the very essence of the gospel. How can a sinner be found? How can a sinner be made right in the sight of God? We have really two groups here represented in the parables. We have that licentious libertinism represented in the younger brother or the younger son. And then we have that self-righteous hypocrisy represented in the older son, the older brother. Now, what I would like to do this morning is something that I did similar to the younger brother or the prodigal himself. I want to reveal to you the older son in three ways from our text, primarily focusing on verse 25 through 30, for these are the verses that reveal to us who the older son, the older brother, really is. And there are, I think, three revelations that we would benefit from this morning looking at in the older son and comparing ourselves with them. In looking at these three revelations in a moment, then we're going to, then I'm going to make some closing comparisons between the older and the younger brother in applications. Hopefully, we may walk away this morning. First of all, if there being some deficiency we find in us that the Holy Spirit reveals to us, that the Word of God points out to us, we would reconcile that with Christ immediately, particularly when we come to the Lord's Supper. And we would leave here in the great expectation and hope that we've been cleansed of our sins and like the younger brother, the prodigal, we too have been, well, washed and made clean. So what are these three revelations that we might glean from the text itself? Well, the first one is, as I see it, there is a moral defect that is exposed in these verses of the older brother. There is this moral deficiency in the older brother. If you would look with me at verse 25. In verse 25, notice the younger brother was in the field and he, he comes out and he approaches the house and he hears the music and he recognizes that there is dancing, there is celebration. And, of course, he inquires of what that might be. Now, after he hears what is taking place, look at verse 28. But he, uh, he became angry, the text says. 
and was not willing to go in, to go into what? The celebration. He was not willing to participate. He was not willing to celebrate the younger, his younger brother coming home. And he made, it was so obvious that his father even had to go out and plead with him to come inside. Now, what defect is this morally in the older brother? Well, quite simply, beloved, as being made in the image of God, and just as our God, as it even is revealed in this parable, our God loves the celebration of good things. Things that are good, things that are wholesome, things that are right, and there's nothing more wholesome, good, and right than when a sinner comes home. Then when a sinner comes to his senses and sees his deficiency, he sees his deadness, he sees his putridness before God, and he comes to God for cleansing, he comes to God for healing, and he comes to be made whole again. That's a good thing, is it not? And we have a moral obligation to celebrate all that is good. Now, I want, you to let, I want you to let that sink in. I want you to think on it. We have a moral duty to celebrate the good things of life. To relish them, to look forward to them, to enjoy them, to be thankful for them. And to praise God for them. And this moral duty, or at least the older son, is defective in this. He doesn't relish the the brother coming home and being found and being made alive. I mean, even the story itself. Even the words that our Lord Jesus uses to describe your, your brother was lost and now he's found, he was dead and now alive, isn't that worthy of celebrating? It not only demonstrates that there was this deficiency that he wouldn't celebrate the homecoming of his younger brother, but that he really didn't love him to begin with. And we are duty brown, certainly to love our siblings, to love our brothers and our sisters, to love our countrymen the best we can, right? That's normal, that's good, that's common. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Do unto others as we would have them do unto us, Jesus taught us. You see, beloved, that the older brother is deficient when it comes to moral things, when it comes to ethics. I mean, you think about morality. You think about God's moral law. You think about what is the moral law. It's the revelation of the will of God. That we would in this revelation be drawn near and what does our catechism, what has our shorter catechism taught us? To be conformed to it. Because conforming to this revelation, to this will of God, 
Well, that's God-like. That's what we call godliness. And the more we are conformed to this beautiful moral law, the more we are like our God, our Father. And the older son lacks this conformity. He lacks this morality. Now, he has all the appearance of morality. I'm sure he received many accolades Being the one who stayed home, the text tells us that he was out in the field working. He seems to be very dutiful. And I'm sure that the community recognized this and gave him many, at least, opportunities to beat his chest and to exalt himself over this wayward younger brother who rebelled and tore out of there to go to another country so he could... Well, exercise all of these lusts. And all the while, beloved, the older brother is defective of that moral fortitude that all of us should be seeking to conform ourselves to. He's deficient in that We see even in the text itself that he never stood up for the father. Even when the younger brother demanded, as the text says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. We don't find, you might find, you might say that this is the sin of omission. Where? Does the older brother stand up for the father's integrity and honor? Well, he doesn't. He's silent on the matter. We have moral obligations, beloved, when the time is needed to speak the truth, don't we? And we don't see him doing that. We nor do we see him pleading with his younger brother not to go. We don't see him pleading with the younger brother to honor his father. We don't see him pleading with his younger, younger brother to, to repent of these lusts or, or they, will, they will kill you, my brother. They will destroy you. We don't see the older brother doing any of those things. In fact, this revelation of the brother tells us that he is very much about himself. If you look at verse 29, he says, but he answered and said to the father, look for many years. I have been serving you. I have never neglected your command. I might celebrate with my friends. He's showing us who he really is. That he's not that honorable and noble son that we might on the outside see. So there is a moral deficiency about this older brother. You might find another 
moral deficiency in the way that he even talks about the younger brother, even after the father tells him he's, well, he's come home, he's, he's alive, he's repented of his sins. I mean, all of that's included in this. This is why we're celebrating. And in verse 30, what does the older son mention about his brother? He says, and when this son of yours, notice he doesn't even claim him as family. He doesn't even acknowledge him as my brother. There's no term of endearment here. He says, your son, very similar to when Adam fell and God confronted Adam about eating of the forbidden fruit. And Adam says, well, it's this woman you gave me. We can see in this, can't we, this, this thread of self-righteousness and arrogance. It's this son of yours. He has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. And you killed the fatted calf for him. He's really accusing the father of not being critical enough and not, not being, you know, an honorable man, an honorable man would stand against this boy. But you've received him. And you've treated him better than you've treated me. And we see there's a moral deficiency in the older brother and we would do well ourselves to look at those things even in our own life. But there's a second deficiency that we need to highlight and they're all connected and they all lead even to the application. And the second one is he had a theological problem. He he erred theologically. And what was this theological problem? Well, the theological problem the older brother had was he didn't understand grace. See, he didn't understand the forgiveness of God. He didn't, he, he wasn't able to distinguish between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. He reveals that in what he says, right? When he says there in verse 29, I have been serving you. I have done all that you've asked me to do. What is he leaning on? What is he trusting in? What is it where the Bible says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks? What is he saying? Have I not been a perfect son to you? You ought to be pleased with me. If there was ever a celebration to be had, you should have it for me. That's what he's saying. You see, what the older brother is revealing is that he doesn't understand the grace of God. He doesn't understand that our heavenly father dates no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't understand that our Lord came to save and to seek that which is lost. He doesn't understand that it's the 
sick, the spiritually sick that need a doctor, that need that physician, not the righteous. He doesn't understand grace, beloved, and I wonder how many may be here this morning that doesn't understand grace. That doesn't understand that when you drink from the cup of God's grace, it changes you. And it changes the way you relate to God and understand your heavenly father. It changes the way you see and understand the children of God, your spiritual brothers and sisters. It changes the way you see the world that you live in. It's a theological incompatibility, beloved, to hold to your works and to try to hold to God's grace. Those two are antithetical to one another. As Paul said, if you're going to, well, use the law as your standard of righteousness, you must keep it perfectly, Galatians 3. Perfectly, without one deviation, without one error. You cannot stray from one jot or tittle from the law of God or you have failed. If you're going to live by the law, then live by the law. But no one can live by that law. And if you're going to live by God's grace, then you're going to live under the banner of God's grace in that humility that recognition that we see found in that first younger boy. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, Father. And I am not worthy to be called your son. You might consider grace not to be a big theological deal but I would say you're wrong I would say you're wrong I would say beloved that like the older boy like the older son we need to refocus our minds we need to recalibrate our hearts in in that softness in that humility in that recognition that we stand in the kingdom of heaven by the grace of almighty god unmerited unmerited we couldn't earn it And there's nothing we could do to gain God's favor. It is out of his mere kindness and love and pleasure of wanting to do it, desiring to do it. He wants to be a God who saves, a God who comes and brings back the wayward sinner. We find him in the very beginning of Holy Scripture coming down and looking for Adam and Eve. Where art thou? Where are you? It's our appointed time to commune and worship. Where are you? We recalibrate our thinking upon grace. We recalibrate ourselves and we recognize that our 
our, our deficiencies. I think if we did that, beloved, our worship would be sweeter. I think if we would do this, I think if we would, we would center our thoughts upon this saving grace, this amazing grace of God, that, I mean, that should have profoundly affected the older brother, his older son, when he saw this father celebrating the homecoming of a wayward son. It should have deeply affected him and moved him to celebrate with him, and it did not. He's the one in the pew that looks at the one coming in the door and says, what are they doing here? When I was a, a new Christian, not just a, a Christian of a few years, very much a babe in Christ, I was attending a very small country church and I was, I was really excited about being saved and I was excited about others being saved and I wanted to tell many about Jesus and how they can have forgiveness in Christ and, and I would be often witnessing to whoever would listen and I would do my best to bring them to church. I would do my best to get them to come to church with me. And there were some times that I brought people with me to church that I was later, that I was later notified that those people are different. They're different. And I said, well, they're sinners. Saved by grace. I mean, why would we not embrace them? No, they have their church. They can go to another church. That's not for us. It's the older brother syndrome, isn't it? And we look around at all of our families, we might even find a, you feel like you're raising both libertines and scribes and Pharisees. Both need saving. Both need salvation. Both need to understand the power and the depth of God's love and grace. It took the younger boy coming to his senses. It took great hardship. In the older son, it takes a celebration to reveal his nakedness, his spiritual nakedness before God. A celebration, a happy moment, a good time reveals his hypocrisy and his deadness. And it's revealed in his attitude toward his brother and his father. Well, there's a third defect 
and that is a personal one. And of course, it's connected and it rightly, um, it flows into this concept, this idea. And that is the older son was dead, was spiritually dead and cold to the things of God. Those things that should, ex- should have excited in him glory, hallelujah, praises, celebration of a, of a sinner coming home, a backsliding sinner coming back to God, infuriated him. The text tells us, doesn't it, that it made him angry of such a thing. How much further away from God and the things of God. I mean, beloved, what is it that describes a deadness and a coldness than when you or I or anyone else becomes angry over the things of God, over those things that God celebrates, that God takes delight in, that God enjoys? It angered him. And he was revealing, and he reveals to us, all who will read this text, all who has read this text and studied this text, and all who will read this text and study this text, he reveals to us his spiritual deadness and the coldness he has toward his own family, his brother and his father. We see not only is he a very self-centered person, again, then this is the description of a dead person. Those who are dead spiritually, those who are cold-hearted toward others, they're always going to focus on themselves. They're always going to see that they are the victim. They're always going to accuse others like he did. Father, you celebrated this. You, he he squandered your wealth, and you're celebrating. I mean, he's judging them. He has become their judge, which is, of course, is an is, is an attribute of hypocrisy and arrogance. And when do we become our brother's judge of his heart, beloved? When, when do we judge our father's grace, his forgiveness, his acceptance of a sinner? When do we have the right to do that? You see, beloved, he, he's a rather cold boy. He's a rather cold young man. He's a dead young man. He's not spiritual-minded. He's self-centered. Notice what he says. And he answered and said to his father, look, for many years I have been serving you. I, am I not, again, have I not been your servant? Well, he was a son, The text tells us that he too received a portion of his inheritance and and how he sees himself is telling because it's how he sees his father, harsh taskmaster. I'm your servant. I labor for you. I work for you. I obey your commands. That's not how a son talks to their father. 
That's how a servant talks to the master. You see, he doesn't understand that service and the reason he's dead and cold and absent, there's an absence of God's grace in his life because when grace comes into a sinner's life, that duty and performance flows out of a heart of thanksgiving and love. You get that? That when saving grace comes into a sinner's life and that sinner is made alive and they come to the senses of their sins, then that duty, those responsibilities and that performance at that point flows from that grace, from a heart of thanksgiving and love. It's not about duty. It's about I love you, Father. What can I do for you? Because what you have done for me can't be paid back. There's nothing, there's no, there's, there's no amount of performance. There's no list of duties. There's nothing I can do to pay this back. It is all by thy grace and mercy. And it flows from a heart of regeneration and grace and love. And we would do well this morning, brothers and sisters, to look at this ourselves, would we not? That we would, that we would begin to ask the question, does my service, does the duty I perform, do the responsibilities that I take on in the kingdom of God, do they flow out of a heart that's been affected by the grace of God? Well, I say, how do I know? It flows out of love. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, but that's the object, that's the purpose of the law is what? Love. Love. What do we love? What can we love? What are we supposed to love? The law of God tells us. He's angry. And he's full of his own works. He has stacked his own merits up before the Father. And he's asked the Father to judge him based on those merits. Not the place to be. It's a sign of a cold, dead hypocrite who doesn't see. They've yet to come to their senses. They don't see that they've just stacked up nothing but works that are worthy of throwing in the trash because none of us produce anything good even in our best of works apart from Christ. Now, how do we make application to these three defects, that moral defect, theological defect, and this personal defect? Well, I think the, the word that, if you're taking notes, that you want to write down is the word pretend. See, this older brother is a pretender. Well, the younger brother's notorious. He's openly notorious. He's ready to go, give me, my, give me what's mine so I can hightail it out of here. I don't care if when I kick up my dust leaving this, you know, 
town that my father is put to shame. It doesn't matter to me. He's a notorious, extravagant sinner. All he cares about is just fulfilling his lusts. Well, the older brother is a pretender. You see, even though he stayed home, he pretends a nearness to God. And all self-righteous pretend a nearness to God. The scribes and Pharisees were saw as, well, the real, the people of God. They were saw as really God's scholars, the teachers of Israel. These are the godly ones. I mean, these are the leaders of Israel, and they were pretenders. They were dead and they were full of hypocrisy and arrogance like the older son. He pretended a nearness to his father, but like the older son, he was far away from him. The younger son went into a a far distant land, the text tells us, and yet the the older brother lived in the same house and he he wasn't closer He wasn't any nearer to his father than the younger brother was. How do we know this from the text? Let me point it out to you. When he heard from the servant in verse 26, and he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he, being the servant, said to him, your brother has come home, your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Right there, what should he have done? Of course my father, of course. Of course my father received him back. Of course my father killed the fatted calf. Of course my father called for a celebration. Of course my father is happy. But he didn't know his father. He should have known exactly. My father cried himself to sleep at night wondering where his little boy was. I heard my father on his knees with my mother praying for the soul of this boy. Of course my father celebrated his coming home. I saw the hurt in my father's eyes every time we walked out on the porch and we looked down that long highway. I saw the hurt in my father's eyes whenever someone would ask him, where's your boy? Where's your younger boy? I heard his voice crack and tremble when he spoke my brother's name. You see how dead this boy is? He didn't know his father. He never took the time to comfort his own father. He never took the time to draw near to his father. Brothers and sisters, these are the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is condemning. They gave all of this presentation of being close to God. And what Jesus is saying is, you're no closer to me than these sinners that are coming and eating at the table. You are no closer to me than these libertines. 
than these notorious sinners. How dare you? You don't know what I want. You don't know what I desire. You don't know what your heavenly father takes delight in. Why? Because you don't know him. You're not near to him. You're not close to him. You're just as far away. Pretender. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you the convicting part of the message is that we too need to make sure we're not pretenders. There's this pretended loyalty the son projects. Notice in this, again, this revelation of his heart in verse 29. For so many years I have been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Not you, Father. Not you. Father, how come we can't celebrate? No, it shows you. His heart, he doesn't care about the Father. He, he wants to pretend this loyalty. He looks loyal because well, he stayed home. He didn't run away with the younger brother. He has the pretended, he, he pretends this loyalty to the father. He's not loyal to the father. He's not loyal to the family. He's not loyal to his, his younger sibling who was in a very dangerous land, dead to God. He comes home, he could care less. Why is he here? He pretends this loyalty He pretends, if you will, but he, he's just full of self. He, it's all about him. He doesn't possess the capacity, brothers and sisters, to look at the hurt and needs of others because he's so dead. He is so spiritually dead and cold. All he can think about is me, myself, and I. This pretended love is nothing more than arrogance and hypocrisy. And my last point is this pretended righteousness. I made this point, and it's a connection to the theological issue he had where he, he misunderstands works in grace. He doesn't understand that now in Adam we've all fallen and we're all made dirty and guilty and dead before God and we have to be made alive. We have to be reconciled. We have to be cleansed. We can't stand in our own rights. We don't, we don't stand on our own merits, if you will. He doesn't understand this and that's why that phrase, I have been serving you. And have never neglected your commandments. Sounds like the rich young ruler. I've obeyed everything you've told me to obey. I've neglected not one thing. And what happened to the rich young ruler? The Bible tells us he went away what? Sad. He didn't understand eternal life either. See, there's this idea, beloved, this, this righteousness that you and I have to possess is a righteousness that's given to us in Christ. 
It's Christ's righteousness. It's being clothed in his righteousness. And that's a merit of grace. It's something we don't deserve. It is something that God does because he loves us and he cares for us. And he wants us to be members of his family. He wants to bring us into his household, adopt us into his home, sit us at his table, put the robe, the sandals, and the ring on our finger. He wants us to be his sons and daughters. And he must robe us in righteousness that is perfect and holy before him. And that only comes from Christ. See, he pretends this righteousness. He doesn't possess it. And brothers and sisters, this is something that I, 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 I see all too often. Yes, you come to church. Yes, you don't, you know, you, you do everything you're told to do. But is your heart for God? You're not going to stray. You're never going to be excommunicated. You're not going to do anything outlandish. You're never going to embarrass yourself. You're never going to embarrass yourself. But do you love God? Do you understand his grace? Do you understand that you don't stand by that righteousness, that you must stand robed in the righteousness of Christ, that you must forsake your righteousness and by faith reach and take hold of Christ's righteousness? Who's worse here? The notorious sinner or the self-righteous sinner? Both are, both will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because I've already explained to you who's, who's going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus pulled a child up to his lap at one point and said, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like this child. You have to trust in Christ. You have to forsake yourself. And you have to put your faith and trust in Christ. You have to receive his life, his death upon that cross and that resurrection as that, that divinely received and recognized righteousness that's the only righteousness that God will ever accept and you have to accept that and that has to be your own righteousness not yours not out of anything you've done out of your own strength out of your own mind when you stand before God I bring nothing but sin, Lord, but Christ's righteousness is mine by faith. We add nothing to that righteousness. It's not your works and Christ's righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness alone. We must come to the realization that there is nothing I can perform with these hands, with this mind, and with my feet. There's nothing I can do even with these lips. There's no amount of praise that I can give that would in any way cleanse my dead works. It is solely by the works and the righteousness of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I have laid before you this morning this older brother this sinner revealed 
Don't leave here this morning without asking yourself, has there been anything revealed in, my, in me, in my own heart? Do I understand grace? Do I really understand repentance? Do I understand God's moral law and the things that I need to conform myself to, the things I should delight in and enjoy and don't, but I need to? Is there a coldness and a spiritual deadness in my heart for reclaimed sinners? Even the heavenly hosts. The chapter tells us in verse 7 and verse 10, I tell you in the same way that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You think the older brother saw his need? He did not. But I don't know, brothers and sisters, this is, this is what I know and this is what I take away. I don't want a cold heart or a dead heart toward reclaimed sinners. I want to be like my heavenly father. And I want to celebrate and have a homecoming when sinners come home. And we don't do it perfectly, do we? But this morning we have an opportunity to realign ourselves and to refocus our thoughts. And we can compare ourselves but this, this we should know has the compassion and the desire for reconciling of our Heavenly Father moved us to be humble and contrite and celebratory of His grace. Let's pray. Almighty God, bless us for Christ's sake. Bless us, O Lord, that we might grasp and take hold of understanding and implementing, Lord, these rules, these principles, Lord, this story that Jesus told. It still holds true. Lord, whether or not these notorious sins are evident or these self-righteous hidden sins are evident that have been brought to light in this parable, Help us, O oh Lord, to confess our sins, consider ourselves unworthy to be your sons and daughters, and cling to Christ and his righteousness as ours. And may we hold on to it by faith and through the strength that the means of grace gives to us, Lord, even the preaching, the prayer, the singing, and now even the taking of this Lord's Supper, this communion, Lord, let us commune with our Lord and our Savior, and have our hope and faith strengthened for today and tomorrow. We pray in Christ's name, amen.